Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Welcome to Forgotten Classics. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 288, where we continue with the White Mall's adventures. First, though, let's get the podcast highlight. This one is very new and rather irregular in how it's coming out but I'm really enjoying it. It's called The Specialist. There is not much of a website and not much of a description, but it's enough. It's a podcast about work we don't think about and the people who do it. Hosted by Casey Miner, project of KALW Public Radio in San Francisco. And they have, as far as I can see, about one a month. Well, so I guess it's not that irregular. They've had three episodes The first one was Ice Guy. I thought that would be about, you know, the ice like you get at the 7-Eleven. Instead, it was about the guy who takes care of the ice rink. The second one was Noise Police. And it was really interesting, too. It was about, you know, when you're complaining about too much noise, who decides on that? Well, there are actually people who go around and measure all that, including vibrations, all kinds of other things that can lead to a very unpleasant life. And sometimes you have to let people know about that in an official way. These guys do it. The third one is called Matchmaker. I haven't listened to that yet, but I'm intrigued. It says, in which Casey accidentally meets one of the last traditional Irish matchmakers. Now, Casey has a great personality. She's humorous, but not too over the top. And these are not that long you know, 10, 15 minutes long, just enough to let you dig in, see why it matters, and realize, oh, I never thought about the guy who keeps the ice rink going, or if I'm complaining about noise, who's going to listen, that sort of thing. So definitely give it a try. Now, last time on the White Mall, we came across two distinct mysteries and had one solved. So now we know the reason Gypsy Nan was hiding is she murdered someone during a burglary. And now those jewels are available again. So that's the next caper. But she's got to go into a nightclub and show herself to lure somebody out so they can take care of him first. Oh man, because the White Mall has got to go as Bertha not as Gypsy Nan, and no one's going to believe that. So how's that going to be pulled off? Then, when Gypsy Nan was there to retrieve the jewels, she thought, ahead of the rest of the gang, here comes Pinky and the Pug, and we know the Pug also has a secret identity. Actually, he is the secret identity of the adventurer. So, he's double-crossing Pinky, Rhoda Gray gets to double-cross both of them, because when they leave, she nabs the jewels and runs. And things are really heating up. Let's get to it. Let's find out what's going on. As we recall, we left Rhoda Gray ready to go into the nightclub. Dive in, and I'll meet you on the other side. The White Mall by Frank L. Packard Chapter 17 The Silver Sphinx A bedlam of noise smote Rhoda Gray's ears as she entered the Silver Sphinx. 
the jazz band was in full swing. On the polished section of the floor in the center, a packed mass of humanity swirled and gyrated and wriggled in the contortions of the latest dance, and laughed and howled immoderately, and around the sides of the room the waiters rushed this way and that amongst the crowded tables, mopping their faces with their aprons. It seemed as though confusion itself held sway. Rhoda Gray scanned the occupants of the tables. The Silver Sphinx was particularly riotous tonight, wasn't it? Yes, she understood. A great many of the men were wearing little badges. Some society or other was celebrating, and was doing it with abandon. Most of the men were half drunk. It was certainly a free and easy night. Everything went. Dangler! Yes, there he was, quite close to her only a few tables away, and beside him sat a heavy-built, clean-shaven man of middle age. That would be Clorin, of course, the man who was to have been lured to his death. And Dangler was nervous and uneasy, she could see. His fingers were drumming a tattoo on the table, his eyes were roaming fruitively about the room, and he did not seem to be paying any but the most distrait attention to his companion, who was talking to him. Rhoda Gray sank quickly into a vacant chair, Three men, linked arm in arm, and decidedly more than a little drunk, were approaching her. She turned her head away to avoid attracting their attention. It was to be free and easy here tonight, and she began to regret her temerity at having ventured inside. She would better, perhaps, have waited until Dangler came out. Only there were two exits, and she might have missed him, and— A cold fear upon her, she shrank back in her chair. The three men halted at the table, and were clustered around her. They began a jocular quarrel amongst themselves as to who should dance with her. Her heart was pounding. She stood and pushed them away. "'Oh, no, you don't,' hiccuffed one of the three. "'Gotta see your <coughs> pretty face, anyhow.' She put up her hands frantically and clutched at her veil, but just an instant too late to save it from being wrenched aside. Wildly her eyes flew to Dangler. His attention had been caught by the scene. She saw him rise from his seat. She saw his eyes widen, and then, stumbling over his chair in haste, he made toward her. Dangler had recognized the white mall. She turned and ran. Fear, horror, desperation lent her strength. It was not like this that she had counted on her reckoning with Dangler. She brushed the roisterers aside and darted for the door. Over her shoulder she glimpsed Dangler following her. She reached the door, burst through a knot of people there, and her torn veil clutched in her hand dashed down the steps. She could only run, run, and pray that in some way she might escape. And then a mad exultation came upon her. She saw the man in the chauffeur's seat of the first car in the line lean out and swing the door open. And in a flash she grasped the situation. The man was waiting for just this for a woman to come running for her life down the steps of the Silver Sphinx. She put her hand up to her face, hiding it with her torn veil, raced for the car, and flung herself into the tonneau. The door slammed. The car leapt from the curb. Dangler was coming down the steps. She heard him shout. The chauffeur, in a startled way, leaned out, as he evidently recognized Dangler's voice. But Rhoda Gray was mistress of herself now. The tonneau of the car was not separated from the driver's seat, and bending forward, she wrenched her revolver from her pocket and pressed the muzzle of the weapon to the back of the man's neck. 
Don't stop, she gasped, struggling for breath. Go on. Quick. The man, with a frightened oath, obeyed. The car gained speed. A glance through the window behind showed Dangler climbing into the other car. And then, for a moment, Rhoda Gray sat there fighting her self-control, with the certain knowledge in her soul that upon her wits, and her wits alone, her life depended now. She studied the car's mechanism over the chauffeur's shoulder, even as she continued to hold the revolver pressed steadily against the back of the man's neck. She could drive a car. She could drive this one. The presence of this chauffeur, one of the gang, was an added menace. There were too many tricks he might play before she could forestall them, any one of which would deliver her into the hands of Dangler behind there, an apparently inadvertent stoppage due to traffic, for instance, that would bring the pursuing car alongside. That, or a dozen other things, would achieve the same end. "'Open the door on your side,' she commanded abruptly, "'and get out, without slowing the car. Do you understand?' He turned his head for a half-incredulous, half-frightened look at her. She met his eyes steadily. The torn veil, quite discarded now, was in her pocket. She did not know the man, but it was quite evident from the almost ludicrous dismay which spread over his face that he knew her. The, the white mall, he stammered. It's the white mall. Jump, she ordered imperatively, and the revolver pressed more significantly against the man's flesh. He seemed even in frantic haste to obey her. He whipped the door open, and before she could reach to the wheel, he had leapt to the street. The car swerved sharply. She flung herself over into the vacated seat, and snatched at the wheel barely in time to prevent the machine from mounting the curb. She looked around again through the window of the hood. The man had swung aboard Dangler's car, which was only a few yards behind. Rhoda Gray drove steadily. Here, in the city streets, her one aim must be never to let the other car come abreast of her, but she could prevent that easily enough by watching Dangler's movements, and cutting across in front of him if he attempted anything of the sort. But ultimately what was she to do? How was she to escape? Her hands gripped and clenched in a sudden, almost panic-like desperation at the wheel. Turn suddenly around a corner and jump from the car herself? It was useless to attempt it. They would keep too close behind her to give her a chance to get out of sight. Well, then, suppose she jumped from the car and trusted herself to the protection of the people on the street. She shook her head grimly. Dangler, she knew only too well, would risk anything, go to any length, to put an end to the white mall. He would not hesitate an instant to shoot her down as she jumped, and he would be fairly safe himself in doing it. A few revolver shots from a car that speeded away in the darkness offered an even chance of escape. And yet, unless she forced an issue such as that, she knew that Dangler would not resort to firing at her here in the city. He would want to be sure that that was the only chance of getting her before he accepted the risk that he would run of being caught for it by the police. She found herself becoming strangely, almost unnaturally cool and collected now. The one danger, greater than all the others, that menaced her was a traffic block that would cause her to stop and allow those in the other car behind her to rush in upon her as she sat here at the wheel. And sooner or later, if she stayed in the city, a block such as that was inevitable. She must get out of the city, then. It was only to invite risk, the risk that Dangler was in the faster car of the two, but there was no other way. 
She drove more quickly, made her way to the bridge, and crossed it. The car behind followed with immutable persistence. It made no effort to close the short gap between them, but neither, on the other hand, did it permit the gap to widen. They passed through Brooklyn, and then, reaching the outskirts, rode a gray, with headlights streaming into the black, with an open Long Island road before her, flung her throttle wide, and the car leaped like a thing of life into the night. And it was a sudden start. It gained her a hundred yards, but that was all. The wind tore at her and whipped her face. The car rocked and reeled as in some mad frenzy. There was not much traffic, but such as it was cleared away from before her, as if by magic, as seeking shelter from the wild meteoric thing running amuck. the few vehicles, motor or horse, that she encountered hugged the edge of the road, and the wind whisked to her ears fragments of shouts and execrations. Again and again she looked back, two fiery balls of light blazed behind her, always those same two fiery balls. She neither gained nor lost. Rigid, like steel, her little figure was crouched over the wheel. She did not know the road. She knew nothing save that she was racing for her life. She did not know the end. She could not see the end. Perhaps there would be some merciful piece of luck for her that would win her through, a breakdown to that roaring thing, with its eyes that were balls of fire behind her. She passed through a town with lighted streets and lighted windows, or was it only imagination? It was gone again, anyhow, and there was just the black road ahead. Over the roar of the car and the sweep of the wind, then, she caught, or fancied she caught, a series of faint reports. She looked behind her. Yes, they were firing now. Little flashes leaped out above and at the sides of those blazing headlights. How long was it since she had left the Silver Sphinx? Minutes or hours would not measure it, would they? But it could not last much longer. She was growing very tired. The strain upon her arms, yes, and the strain upon her eyes, was becoming unbearable. She swayed a little in her seat, and the car swerved, and she jerked it back again into the straight. She began to laugh a little hysterically, and then, suddenly, she straightened up, tense and alert once more. That swerve was the germ of inspiration. It took root swiftly now. It was desperate, but she was desperate. She could not drive much more, or much longer like this. Her body and mind were almost undone. And besides, she was not outdistancing that car behind her there by a foot, and sooner or later they would hit her with one of their shots, or perhaps what they were really trying to do was puncture one of her tires. Again she glanced over her shoulder. Yes, Dangler was just far enough behind her to make the plan possible. She began to allow the car to swerve noticeably at intervals, as though she were weakening and the car was getting beyond her control, which was indeed almost too literally the case. And now it seemed to her that each time she swerved there came an exultant shout from the car behind. Well, she asked for nothing better. That was what she was trying to do, wasn't it? Inspire them with the belief that she was breaking under the strain? Her eyes searched anxiously down the luminous pathway made by her high-powered headlights. If only she could reach a piece of road that combined two things, an embankment of some sort, and a curve just sharp enough to throw those headlights behind her off at a tangent for an instant as they rounded it too, in following her. A minute, two, another passed. And then, Rhoda Gray, tight-lipped, 
her face drawn hard, as her headlights suddenly edged away from the road, and opened what looked like a ravine to her left, while the road curved to the right, flung a frenzied glance back of her. It was her chance, her one chance. Dangler was perhaps a little more than a hundred yards to the rear. Yes, now. His headlights were streaming out on her left as he, too, touched the curve. The right-hand side of her car, the right-hand side of the road were in blackness. She checked violently, almost to a stop, then almost instantly opened the throttle wide once more, wrenching the wheel over to head the machine for the ravine, and before the car picked up its momentum again, she dropped from the right side, darted for the edge of the road, and flung herself flat down upon the ground. The great, black body of her car seemed to sail into nothingness, like some weird aerial monster, the headlights streaming uncannily through space, then blackness, and a terrific crash. And now the other car came to a stop almost opposite where she lay. Dangler and the two chauffeurs, shouting at each other in wild excitement, leaped out and rushed to the edge of the embankment. And then suddenly the sky grew red as a great tongue flame shot up from below. It outlined the forms of the three men as they stood there, until abruptly, as though with one accord, they rushed pell-mell down the embankment toward the burning wreckage. And as they disappeared from sight, Rhoda Gray jumped to her feet, sprang for Dangler's car, flung herself into the driver's seat, and the car shot forward again along the road. A shout, a wild chorus of yells, the reports of a fusillade of shots reached her. She caught a glimpse of the forms running insanely after her along the edge of the embankment, then silence save for the roar of the speeding car. She drove on and on. Somewhere, nearing a town, she saw a train in the distance coming in her direction. She reached the station first, and left the car standing there, and with the torn veil over her face again, took the train. She was weak, undone, exhausted. Even her mind refused its functions further. It was only in a subconscious way she realized that, where she had thought never to go to the garret again, the garret and the role of Gypsy Nan were, more than ever now, her sole refuge. The plot against Clorin had failed, but they could not blame that on Bertha's non-appearance, and since it had failed, she would not now be expected to assume the dead woman's personality. True, she had not, as had been arranged, reached the Silver Sphinx at eleven, but there were a hundred excuses she could give to account for her being late in keeping the appointment so that she had arrived just in time, say, to see Dangler dash wildly in pursuit of a woman who had jumped into the car that she was supposed to take. The Garret. The Garret again, and Gypsy Nan. Her surroundings seemed to become blank to her, her actions to be prompted by some purely mechanical sense— she was conscious only that finally, after an interminable time, she was in New York again, and after that, long, long after that, dressed as Gypsy Nan, she stumbled up the dark, ladder-like steps to the attic. How her footsteps dragged! She opened the door, staggered inside, locked the door again and staggered toward the cot, and dropped upon it, and the gray dawn came in with niggardly light through the grimy little window-panes, as though timorously inquisitive of this shawled and desolate figure, prone and motionless, this figure who would in other dawns had found neither sleep nor rest, this figure who lay there now as one dead. CHAPTER Eighteen, THE OLD SHED 
Rhoda Gray opened her eyes, and from the cot upon which she lay, stared with drowsy curiosity around the garret, and in another instant she was sitting bolt upright, alert and tense, as the full flood of memory swept upon her. There was still a meager light creeping in through the small, grimy window-panes, but it was the light of wanning day. She must have slept, then, all through the morning and the afternoon, slept the dead, heavy sleep of exhaustion from the moment she flung herself down here a few hours before daybreak. She rose impulsively to her feet. It was strange that she had not been disturbed, that no one had come to the garret. The recollection of the events of the night before were crowding themselves upon her. In view of last night, in view of her failure to keep that appointment in the role of Dangler's wife, it was strange, indeed, that she had been left undisturbed. Subconsciously she was aware that she was hungry, that it was long since she had eaten, and almost mechanically she prepared herself something now from the store the garret possessed. But even as she ate, her mind was far from thoughts of food. From the first night she had come here, and self-preservation had thrust this miserable role of Gypsy Nan upon her, from the first night, and from the following night when, to save the sparrow, she had been whirled into the vortex of the gang's criminal activities, her mind raced on through the sequence of events that seemed to have spanned some vast, immeasurable space of time, until they had brought her to last night. Last night. She had thought it would end last night, but instead the dark eyes grew suddenly hard and intent. Yes, she had counted upon last night, when, with the necessary proof in her possession with which to confront Dangler with the crime of murder, she could wring from the man all that now remained necessary to substantiate her story and clear herself in the eyes of the law of that robbery at Skarbolov's antique store, of which she was held guilty, and instead she had barely escaped with her life. That was the story of last night. Her eyes grew harder. Well, the way was still open, wasn't it? Last night had changed nothing in that respect. Tonight, as the white mall, she had only to find and corner Dangler as she had planned to do last night. She still had only to get the man alone somewhere. Rhoda Gray's hands clenched tightly. That was all that was necessary. Just the substantiation of her own story that the plot to rob Skarbolov lay at the door of Dangler and his gang, or rather, Perhaps that the plot was in existence before she had ever heard of Skarbolov. It would prove her own statement of what the dying woman had said. It would exonerate her from guilt. It would prove that, rather than having any intention of committing crime, she had taken the only means within her power of preventing one. The real gypsy Nan, Dangler's wife, who had died that night, bad in eleventh-hour penitence, refused to implicate her criminal associates. There was a crime projected which, unless she, Rhoda Gray, would agree to forestall it in person, and would give her oath not to warn the police about it, and to put the actual criminals in jeopardy, would go on to its fulfillment. She remembered that night in the hospital. The scene came vividly before her now. The woman's pleading, the woman's grim loyalty even in death to her pals. She, Rhoda Gray, had given her oath it became necessary only to substantiate those facts. Dangler could be made to do it. She had now, in her possession, the evidence that would convict him of complicity in the murder of Deemer, and for which murder the original Gypsy Nan had gone into hiding. 
she had in her possession the missing jewels that had prompted that murder. She had, too, the evidence now to bring the entire gang to justice for their myriad of depredations. She knew where their secret hoard of ill-gotten gain was hidden, here in this attic, behind the ingeniously contrived trap-door in the ceiling. She knew all this, and this information placed before the police, providing only it was backed by the proof that the scheme to rob Skarbolov was to be carried out by the gang, as she, Rhoda Gray, would say the dying woman had informed her, would be more than enough to clear her. She had not had this proof on that first night when she had snatched at the mantle of Gypsy Nan as the sole means of escape from Rough Rourke of headquarters. She did not have it now, but she would have it, stake all and everything in her life she had to have it, for it, and itself, literally meant everything and all, and Dangler would make a written confession, or else, or else. She smiled mirthlessly. That was all. Last night she had failed. Tonight she would not fail. Before morning came, if it were humanly within her power, she and Dangler would have played out their game, to the end. And now a pucker came and gathered her forehead into little furrows, and anxiety and perplexity crept into her eyes. Another thought tormented her. In the exposure that was to come, the adventurer, alias the pug, was involved. Was there any way to save the man to whom she owed so much, the splendidly chivalrous, high-couraged gentleman she loved, the thief she abhorred? She pushed the remains of her frugal meal away from her, stood up abruptly from the rickety washstand at which she had been seated, and commenced to pace nervously up and down the stark, bare garret. Where was the line of demarcation between right and wrong? Was it a grievous sin, or an infinitely human thing to do, to warn the man she loved, and give him a chance to escape the net she meant to furnish the police? He was a thief, even a member of the gang, though he used the gang as his puppets. Did ethics count when one who had stood again and again between her and peril was himself now in danger? Would it be a righteous thing, or an act of despicable ingratitude, to trap him with the rest? She laughed out shortly. Warn him. Of course she would warn him. But then, what? She shivered a little, and her face grew drawn and tired. It was the old, old story of the pitcher and the well— it was almost inevitable that sooner or later, for some crime or another, the man she loved would be caught at last, and would spend the greater portion of his days behind prison bars. That was what the love that had come into her life held as its promise to her. It was terrible enough, without her agency being the means of placing him there. She didn't want to think about it. She forced her mind into other channels, though they were scarcely less disquieting. Why was it that during the day just past there had been not a sign from Dangler or any one of the gang when every plan of theirs had gone awry last night, and she had failed to keep her appointment in the role of Dangler's wife? Why was it? What did it mean? Surely Dangler would never allow what had happened to pass unchallenged, and—was that someone now? She halted suddenly by the door to listen, her hand going instinctively into the wide, voluminous pocket of her greasy skirt for her revolver. Yes, there was a footstep in the hall below, but it was descending to the ground floor, not coming up. 
She even heard the street door close, but still she clung there in a strained, tense way, and into her face there came creeping a gray dismay. Her pocket was empty. The revolver was gone. Its loss, pregnant with a hundred ominous possibilities, seemed to bring a panic fear upon her, holding her for a moment inert. And then she rushed frantically to the cot. Perhaps it had fallen out of her pocket during the hours she had lain there asleep. She searched the folds of the soiled and crumpled blanket that was the cot's sole covering, then snatched the blanket completely off the cot and shook it, and then, down on her knees, searched the floor under the cot. There was no sign of the revolver. Rhoda Gray stood up and stared in a stunned way about her. Was this, then, the explanation of her having seemingly been left undisturbed all through the day? Had someone, after all, been here and— She shook her head suddenly with a quick, emphatic gesture of dissent. The door was still locked. She could see the key on the inside, and besides, as a theory, it wasn't logical. They wouldn't have taken her revolver and left her placidly asleep. The loss of the revolver was a vital matter. It was her one safeguard, the one means by which she could first gain and afterwards hold the whip hand over Dangler in the interview she proposed to have with him, the one means of escape, the last resort, if she herself were cornered and fell into his power. It had sustained her more than once, that resolution to turn it against herself if she were in extremity. It meant everything to her, that weapon, and it was gone. But the panic that had seized her was gone, too, and she could think rationally and collectively again. Last night, or rather this morning, when she had made her way back to the shed out there in the lane behind the garret, she had been in a state of utter exhaustion. She had changed from the clothes of the white mall to those of Gypsy Nan, but she must have done so almost mechanically, for she had no concrete recollection of it. It was quite likely, then, even more than probable, that she had left the revolver in the pocket of her other clothes, for she had certainly had not only her revolver, but her flashlight and her skeleton keys as well when she had visited old Lurtz's place last night, and later on, too, when she had jumped into the automobile in front of the Silver Sphinx. She had had her revolver, for she had used it to force the chauffeur out of the car, and she had no one of those articles now. Of course, that was it. She stepped impulsively to the door, and opening it, made her way quickly down the stairs to the street. The revolver was undoubtedly in the pocket of her other skirt, and she felt a surge of relief sweep upon her, but a sense of relief was far from enough. She would not be safe until the weapon was again in her possession, and intuitively she felt that she had no time to lose in securing it. She had already been left too long alone not to make a break in that unaccountable isolation they had accorded her as something to be expected at any moment. She hurried down the street to the lane that intervened between Gypsy Nan's house and the next corner, glanced quickly about her, and seeing no one in her immediate vicinity, slipped into the lane. She gained the deserted shed some fifty yards along the lane, entered through the broken door that hung half-open on sagging hinges, and dropping to her knees, reached under the decayed and rotting flooring. She pushed aside impatiently the package of jewels, at whose magnificence she had gazed awestruck and bewildered the night before, and drew out the bundle that comprised her own clothing. Her hand sought the pocket eagerly. Yes, it was here. At least the flashlight was— and so were the skeleton keys. That was what had happened. 
She had been near utter collapse last night, and she had forgotten, and— Rhoda Gray, unconscious even that she still had the clothing in her hands, rose mechanically to her feet. There was a sudden weariness in her eyes as she stared unseeingly about her. Yes, the flashlight and the keys were here, but the revolver was not. Her brain harked back in lightning flashes over the events of the preceding night. She must have lost it somewhere. Where? She had had it in the automobile, that she knew positively, but after that she did not remember, unless—yes, it must have been that— when she had jumped from the car and flung herself down at the roadside. It must have fallen out of her pocket then. Her heart seemed to stand still. Suppose they had found it. They would certainly recognize it as belonging to Gypsy Nan. They were not fools. The deduction would become obvious. The identity of the White Mall would be solved. Was that why no one had apparently come near her? Were they playing at cat and mouse? watching her before they struck, so that she would lead them to the jewels under the flooring here that were worth a king's ransom? They certainly believed that the white mall had them. The adventurer's note, so ironically true, that he had intended as an alibi for himself, and which he had exchanged for the package in old Lurtz's place, would have left no doubt in their minds that the stones were in her possession. Was that it? Were they? She held her breath. It seemed as though suddenly her limbs were refusing to support her weight. In the soft earth outside she had heard no step, but she saw now a shadow fall athwart the half-open doorway. There was no time to move, even if she had been capable of action. It seemed as though even her soul had turned to stone, and, with the white mull's clothes in her hands, she stood there staring at the doorway, and something that was greater than fear, because it mingled horror, ugly and forbidding fell upon her. It was still just light enough to see. The shadow moved forward and came inside. She wanted to scream, to rush madly in retreat to the farthest corner of the shed, but she could not move. It was Dangler who was standing there. He swayed a little on his feet, and the dark, sinister face seemed blotched, and he seemed to smile as though possessed by some unholy and perverted sense of humor. She was helpless, at his mercy, unarmed, save for her wits. Her wits. Were wits any longer of avail? She could believe nothing else now except that he had been watching her, before he struck. "'What are you doing here, and what are those clothes you've got in your hands?' he rasped out. She could only fence for a time in the meager hope that some loophole would present itself. She forced an assumed defiance into her tones and manner that was in keeping with the sort of armed truce which, from her first meeting with Dangler, she had inaugurated as a barrier between them. "'You've asked me two questions,' she said tartly. "'Which one do you want me to answer first? "'Look here,' he snapped. "'You cut that out. "'There's one or two things need explaining. "'See? "'What are those clothes?' "'Her wits. "'Perhaps he did not know as much as she was afraid he did. "'She seemed to have become abnormally contained.' her mind abnormally acute and active. It was not likely that the woman, his wife, whom he believed she was, had worn her own clothes in his presence since the day, some two years ago, when she had adopted the disguise of Gypsy Nan, and she, Rhoda Gray, remembered that on the night Gypsy Nan, reassuming her true personality, had gone to the hospital, the woman's clothes, like these she now held, had been of dark material. 
it was not likely that a man would be able to differentiate between those clothes and the clothes of the white mall, especially as the latter hung folded in her hands now, and even though he had seen them on her at the Silver Sphinx last night. "'What clothes do you suppose they are but my own, though I haven't had a chance to wear them much lately?' she countered crisply. He scowled at her speculatively. "'What are you doing with them out here in this hole, then?' he demanded. "'I had to wear them last night, hadn't I?' she retorted. "'I'd have looked well coming out of Gypsy Nan's garret dressed as myself, if anyone had seen me.' She scowled at him in turn. She was beginning to believe that he had not even an inkling of her identity. Her safest play was to stake everything on that belief. "'Say, what's the matter with you?' she inquired disdainfully. "'I came out here and changed last night.' I had to change into these rags I'm wearing now when I got back again, and I left my own clothes here because I was expecting to get word that I could put them on again soon for keeps, though I might have known from past experience that something would have queered the fine promises you made at Maddie's last night, and the reason I'm out here now is because I left some things in the pocket amongst them. She stared at him mockingly. My marriage certificate. Dangler's face blackened. Curse you, he burst out angrily. When you get your tantrums on, you've got a tongue, haven't you? You'd have been wearing your clothes now, if you had done as you were told. You were the one who queered things last night. His voice was rising. He was rocking even more unsteadily on his feet. Why the hell weren't you at the Silver Sphinx? Rhoda Gray squinted at him through Gypsy Nan's spectacles. She knew an hysterical impulse to laugh outright, in the sure consciousness of supremacy over him. The man had been drinking. He was by no means drunk, but, on the other hand, he was by no means sober, and she was certain now that, though she did not know how he had found her here in the shed, not the slightest suspicion of her had entered his mind. "'I was at the Silver Sphinx,' she announced coolly. "'You lie,' he said hoarsely. "'You weren't. I told you to be there at eleven, and you weren't. You lie. What are you lying to me for, eh? I'll find out. You—' "'You—' Rhoda Gray dashed her clothes down on the floor at her feet, and faced the man as though suddenly overcome in turn herself with passion, shaking both her fists at him. "'Don't you talk to me like that, Pierre Dangler,' she shrilled. "'I lie, do I? Well, I'll prove to you I don't. You said you were going to have supper with Clorin at eleven o'clock, and perhaps I was a few minutes after that.' but maybe you think it's easy to get all this Gypsy Nan stuff off my face and all, and rig up in my own clothes that I haven't seen for so long it's a wonder they hold together at all? I lie, do I? Well, just as I got to the Silver Sphinx, I saw a woman breaking her neck to get down the steps with you after her. She jumped into the automobile that was doped out I was to take, and you jumped in the other one, and both beat it down the street. I thought you'd gone crazy. I was afraid Clorin would come out and recognize me, so I turned and ran, too. The safest thing I could do was come back into the Gypsy Nan game again, and that's what I did. And I've been lying low ever since, waiting to get some word from you, and not a soul came near me. You're a nice lot, you are. And now you come sneaking here and call me a liar. How'd you get to this shed, anyway? Dangler pushed his hand in a heavy, confused way across his eyes. "'My God!' he said heavily. "'So that's it, is it?' His voice became suddenly conciliating in its tones. "'Look here, Bertha, old girl. Don't get sore. 
I didn't understand, see? And there was a whole lot that looked queer. We even lost the jewels at old Lurtz's last night. Do you know who that woman was? It was the White Mall. She led us on a chase all over Long Island, and— The White Mall? ejaculated Rhoda Gray, and then her laugh, short and jeering, rang out. The tables were turned. She had him on the defensive now. You needn't tell me she got away again, of course. Why don't you hire a detective to help you? You make me weary. So it was the White Mall, was it? Well, I'm listening. Only I'd like to know first how you got here to this shed. There's nothing in that, he answered impatiently. There's something more important to talk about. I was coming over to the garret, and just as I reached the corner I saw you go into the lane. And I followed you. That's all there is to that. Oh, she sniffed. She stared at him for a moment. There was something in which there was the uttermost of irony, it seemed, in this meeting between them. Last night she had striven to meet him alone, and she had meant to devote tonight to the same purpose. And she was here with him now, and in a place then which, in her wildest hopes, she could imagine one no better suited to the reckoning she would have demanded and forced. And she was helpless, powerless to make use of it. She was unarmed. Her revolver was gone. Without that to protect her, at an intimation that she was the white mall, she would never leave this shed alive. The spot would be quite as ideal under those circumstances for him as it would have been under other circumstances for her. She shrugged her shoulders. Dangler's continued silence evidently invited further comment on her part. Oh, she sniffed again. And I suppose, then, that you have been chasing the white mall ever since last night at eleven, and that's why you didn't get around sooner to allay my fears, even though you knew I must be half mad with anxiety at the way things broke last night. She'll have us down and out for keeps if you haven't got brains enough to beat her. And how much longer is this thing going on? Dangler's little black eyes narrowed. She caught a sudden glint of triumph in them. It was Dangler now who laughed. Not much longer, his voice was arrogant with malicious satisfaction. The luck had to turn, hadn't it? Well, it's turned. I've got the white mall at last. She felt the color leave her face. It seemed as though something had closed with an icy clutch upon her heart. She had heard aright, hadn't she? that he had said he had got the white mall at last, and there was no mistaking the man's sinister delight in making that announcement. Had she been premature, terribly premature, in assuring herself that her identity was still safe as far as he was concerned? Did it mean that, after all, he had been playing at cat and mouse with her, as she had first feared? You, you've got the white mall? She forced the words from her lips, striving to keep her voice steady and in control, and to infuse into it an ironical incredulity. Sure, he said complacently, the showdown comes tonight. In another hour or so, we'll have her where we want her, and— Oh, she laughed, almost hysterically in relief, I thought so. You haven't got her yet. You're only going to get her, in another hour or so. You make me tired. It's always in another hour or so with you, and it never comes off. Dangler scowled under her taunt. It'll come off this time, he snarled in savage menace. You hold that tongue of yours. Yes, it'll come off, and when it does, a sweep of fury sent the red into his working face. 
I'll keep the promise I made her once, that she'd wish she'd never been born. Do you hear, Bertha? I hear, she said indifferently. But would you mind telling me how you're going to do it? I might believe you then, perhaps. Damn you, Bertha, he exploded. Sometimes I'd like to wring that pretty neck of yours, and sometimes, he moved suddenly toward her, I would sell my soul for you, and she retreated from him coolly. Never mind that. This isn't a love scene, she purred caustically. And as for the other, save it for the white mall. What makes you think you've got her at last? I don't think. I know. He stood gnawing at his lips, eyeing her uncertainly, half angrily, half hungrily. And then he shrugged his shoulders. Listen, he said, I've got someone else, too. And I know where the leak that's queered every one of our games, and put the white mall wise to every one of our plans beforehand has come from. I guess you'll believe me now, won't you? We've got that dude pal of hers fastened up tighter than the night he fastened me with his cursed handcuffs. Do you know who that same dude pal is? He laughed in an ugly, immoderate way. You don't, of course, so I'll tell you. It's the pug. Rhoda Gray didn't answer. It was growing dark here in the shed. Perhaps that's why the man's form blended suddenly into the doorway and the wall and blurred before her. She tried to think, but there seemed to have fallen upon her a numbed and agonized stupefaction. There was no confusing this issue. Dangler had found out that the adventurer was the pug, and it meant—oh, what did it mean? They would kill him. Of course they would kill him. The adventurer, discovered, would be safer at the mercy of a pack of starved pumas, and— I thought that would hold you, said Dangler with brutal serenity. That's why I didn't get around till now. I didn't get back from that chase until daylight. The she-fiends stole our car, and then I went to bed to get a little sleep. About three o'clock this afternoon Pinky Bon woke me up. He was half batty with excitement. He said he was over in the tenement in the pug's room. The pug wasn't in, and Pinky was waiting for him, and then all of a sudden he heard a woman screaming like mad from somewhere. He went to the door and looked out, and saw a man dash out of a room across the hall, and burst in the door of the next room. There was a woman in there with her clothes on fire. She upset a coal-oil stove or something. The man Pinky had seen beats the fire out, and everybody in the tenement begins to collect around the door. And then Pinky goes pop-eyed. The man's face was the face of the white mall's dude pal, but he had on the pug's clothes. Pinky's a wise guy. He slips away to me without getting himself in the limelight or spilling any beans. And I didn't ask him if he'd been punching the needle again overtime either. It fitted like a glove with what happened at old Lurtz's last night. You don't know about that. Pinky and this double-crossing snitch went there, and only found a note from the white mall. He'd tipped her off before, of course, and the note made a nice little play so he'd be safe himself with us. Well, that's about all. We had to get him, where we wanted him, and we got him. We waited until he showed up again as the pug, and then we put over a frame-up deal on him that got him to go over to that old iron plant in Harlem, you know, behind Jake Malley's saloon, where we had it fixed up to hand Clorin his last night, and the pug's there now. He's nicely gagged and tied and quite safe. The plant's been shut down for the last two months, and there's only the watchman there, and he's squared. 
we gave the pug two hours of solitary confinement to think it over and come across. We just asked him for the white mall's address, so's we could get her and the sparklers she swiped at old Lurtz's place last night. Still, Rhoda Gray did not speak for a moment. She seemed to be held in the thrall of both terror and a sickening dismay. It didn't seem real, her surroundings here, this man, and the voice that was gloatingly pronouncing the death sentence upon the man who had come unbidden into her life and into her heart, the man she loved. Yes, she understood. Dangler's words had been plain enough. The adventurer had been trapped, not through Dangler's cunning, or lack of cunning on the adventurer's own part, but through force of circumstances that had caused him to fling all thought of self-consideration to the winds in an effort to save another's life. Her hands, hidden in the folds of her skirt, clenched until they hurt. And it was another self, it seemed, subconsciously enacting the role of Gypsy Nan, alias Dangler's wife, who spoke at last. "'You are a fool. You are all fools,' she cried tempestuously. "'What do you expect to gain by that?' Do you imagine you can make the pug come across with any information by a threat to kill him if he doesn't? You tried that once. You had him cold, or at least you thought you had, and so did he, that night in old Nicky Viner's room, and he laughed at you even when he expected you to fire the next second. He's not likely to have changed since then, is he? No, said Dangler with a vicious chuckle, and that's why I'm not trying the same game twice. That's why we've got him over at the old iron plant now. There was something she didn't like in Dangler's voice, something of ominous assurance, something that startled her. What do you mean? she demanded sharply. It's a lonely place, said Dangler complacently. There's no one around but the watchman, and he's an old friend of Schlucker's, and it's so roomy over there that no one could expect him to be everywhere at once. See? That lets him out. He's been well greased and he won't know anything. Don't you worry, old girl. That's what I came here for, to tell you that everything is all right after all. The pug will talk. Maybe he wouldn't if he just had his choice between that and a quick, painless end that a bullet would bring, but there are things that a man can't stand. Get me? We'll try a few of those on the pug, and believe me, before we're through, there won't be any secrets wrapped up in his bosom." Rhoda Gray stood motionless. Thank God it had grown dark, dark enough to hide the whiteness that she knew had crept over her face, and the horror that crept into her eyes. "'You mean,' her voice was very low, "'you mean you're going to torture him into talking?' "'Sure,' Dangler said. "'What do you think?' "'And after that?' "'We bump him off, of course,' said Dangler callously. "'He knows all about us, don't he?' and I guess we'll square up on what's coming to him. He's put the crimp into us for the last time. Dangler's voice pitched suddenly hoarse in fury. That's a hell of a question to ask. What do you think we'd do with a yellow cur that's double-crossed us like that? Plead for the adventurer's life? It was useless. It was worse than useless. It would only arouse suspicion toward her. From the standpoint of any one of the gang, the adventurer's life was forfeit. Her mind was swift, cruelly swift in its workings. There came a prompting to disclose her own identity, to tell Dangler that he need not go to the adventurer to discover the whereabouts of the White Mall, that she was here now before him. There came the prompting to offer herself in lieu of the man she loved. 
but that, too, was useless, and worse than useless. They would still do away with the adventurer because he had been the pug, and the only chance he had now, as represented by whatever she might be able to do, would be gone, since she would have delivered herself into their hands. She drew back suddenly. Dangler had stepped toward her. She was unable to avoid him, and his arm encircled her waist. She shivered as the pressure of his arm tightened. "'It's all right, old girl,' he said exuberantly. "'You've been through hell, you have, and it's all right at last. You leave it to me. Your husband's got a kiss to make up for every drop of that grease you've had to put on the prettiest face in New York.' It seemed as though she must scream out. It was hideous. She could not force herself to endure it another instant, even for safety's sake. She pushed him away. It was unbearable, at any risk, cost what it might. Mind, soul, and body recoiled from the embrace. "'Leave me alone,' she panted. "'You've been drinking. Leave me alone.' He drew back and laughed. "'Not very much,' he said. "'The celebration hasn't started yet, and you'll be in on that.' I guess your nerves have been getting shaky lately, haven't they? Well, you can figure on the swellest recure you ever heard of, Bertha. Take it from me. We're going down to keep the pug company presently. You blow around Maddie's about midnight and get the election returns. We'll finish the job by getting Clorin out of the road some way before morning, and that will let you out for keeps. There won't be anyone left to recognize the woman who was with Deemer the night he shuffled out. He backed to the doorway. Get me? Come over to Maddie's and see the Raja's sparklers about midnight. We'll have them then, and the she-fiend too. So long, Bertha. She scarcely heard him. She answered mechanically. Good night, she said. I cannot wait to listen to the next episodes. Now we are cooking with gas. Oh my gosh, who knew the White Mall could handle a car chase like James Bond? <laughs> I loved it. Rolling out of the car, taking their car when they stopped to look for her. Brilliant. And then later, when she doesn't have her gun, she's at Dangler's mercy. He's there going, what are those clothes you have? I mean, everything seems to be lost, and she bluffs just long enough to get a sense of what's going on and get the upper hand on the situation. Brilliant. Except the adventurer has got to be saved now. Well, dang. What bad luck that let Pinky see that he was the pug. Oh, man but they still don't know about the connection between the White Mall and Gypsy Nan. So maybe she can pull something off. I certainly hope so. We only have three chapters left, and I believe I'm going to put them all into one long episode. Because I've had enough of this messing around. Let's get the end of this story going. Other than that, I don't have anything... The weather's the same. Podcast stuff is the same. Everything's the same. And that's not a bad thing, you know. <laughs> Sometimes a little calm is just what we need. So this is going to be the shortest ending ever for the show, right? 
thank you for coming by. <laughs> Have a great week, everyone. I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.